<laughs> Rich just got his website up there. Uh, I know. What a, what a promoter. <laughs> I should put a link to my new paper. <laughs> right. Hey, if I don't do it, who will? <laughs> Isn't that what your dad told you, Rich? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which continent are you on these days? Right now, I'm in the U.S. I'm uh, at Connecticut, actually. <laughs> I finished my sabbatical just recently. So um, it's been the last month and a half just kind of getting reoriented and so forth. Yeah, I was noticing that on your Vita. You know, uh, in, in 13 years, you've had uh, uh, two, two visiting positions in France, two in Spain, and two in Italy. Sounds like a... Sweet set of gigs. <laughs> well, you know, we have a nice profession. Um, gives us flexibility to go places. And I'd like to exercise those options if I can. Absolutely. How do I get some of those gigs? Well, it should be easy for you, Rich. You're a star. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not getting those phone calls for some reason. <laughs> well, yeah, we can we can talk about that. That's that you know, people have a misperception that, that folks are just gonna call them and invite them to give workshops and Oh, like that. okay. But that doesn't that doesn't happen to most people. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, you have to manage it. And, uh, okay, so I I can't rely on this as my only form of self promotion. There's got to no, be something else. No, 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 no. So it is my pleasure today to introduce Tim Folta. Tim is a uh, professor of management and the Tom and Betty Wolf Family Chair in Strategic Ma Strategic Entrepreneurship Management at University of Connecticut. Also serves as the faculty director for the Connecticut Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Previously served on the faculty at uh, University of Kentucky and right here at Purdue, earned his PhD here at Purdue in 1994. Uh, actually, I believe uh, Tim was the first Brock chair in, uh, uh, Brock family chair in strategic management. Is that right? It was there, was the one before you. Correct. The, the inaugural chair. Um, and uh, he studies uh, entrepreneurship, corporate strategy, uh, entry and exit decisions, diversification, with a recent emphasis on uh, this concept of resource redeployment. Uh, he is, I believe I'm getting this right, though the ladder of, of positions in the uh, STR division is a little bewildering. I think Tim is now the division chair, is that right? Right. Okay. Uh, you, may, you maybe want to update that on your Vita. Uh, he also serves as associate editor for Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal and has been a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, he has numerous uh, top-tier publications uh, and uh, vastly well-cited publications with over 9,300 uh, Google Scholar citations. So please join me in welcoming Tim Falta. Great. Thank you. It's wonderful to, to be with you uh, and among friends. I, I know uh, several of you, especially Tom Brush, extraordinarily well. And um, it's an honor to be part of this. So thank you. 
Well, we're delighted to have you here. Yeah, so I like to, you know, start these conversations out by, <clears throat> by asking a little bit about what brought you into this profession in the first place. Uh, as I like to say, I've never seen a, heard a 10-year-old say, Mommy, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. And so I, I usually assume there's some indirect pathway. I know that you uh, started your career as a banker, actually. Uh, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what a, what a nice banker like you is doing in a field like this. Yeah, I, I graduated in, with a degree in finance, uh, undergrad, and um, started my MBA at IU Indianapolis. Mm. And uh, my boss at the bank just happened to walk by me one day, and he said, Tim, have you ever thought about getting a PhD? And I, I honestly had not thought about getting a PhD, but there must have been something about my uh, my work, you know, my approach to work that kind of led him to suggest that. So, so that kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And my dad had gotten a PhD in English. And um, so, I'm, first of all, I'm not sure if that's a good sign from the boss asking you if you want to get a PhD. Yeah, well, you know, you can interpret it lots of different ways. Uh, but uh, so I, I actually, for family reasons, I actually stopped my IU Indianapolis MBA and went to Purdue uh, full time to, 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 to do an M MSIA. And while I was there, I was super enthralled with a, a class taught by Manu Kawani. Ah, marketing class. Yeah. And uh, I took this marketing strategy class, management or marketing 620. And, uh, and uh, I really liked it. So I approached him and I said, you know, I really like your class. I'm thinking about getting a PhD. And he says, well, <laughs> Tim, if you like this class, uh, you should really go talk to the strategy folks because the sort of marketing we do here at Purdue is, is you know, much, a much different animal. So I went and talked to Dan Schendel and, uh, told them I think I might be interested in a PhD. And at the same time, I was doing some interviewing and I had a, a few offers from folks and, and the thought of going back into the workforce and, you know, going through the grind did not excite me. So I started the PhD program at Purdue. Um, and, you know, it probably helped that I was an MSI student so they could resolve their information asymmetry. Exactly. Uh, and I have to admit, uh, I don't think Tom was a faculty member. Tom, when did you join Purdue? Uh, sorry, I joined around 92, 93. Okay, so I, I joined uh, the PhD program in 90. And uh, I have to admit, um, I joined, I had a naive view of what, what getting a PhD was. I, I, I was kind of interested in teaching. My dad was a... a very effective teacher of creative writing. And I, I had so many people approach me telling me what an impact he had on their lives. And I thought, well, if I get a PhD, I could have a similar impact. Uh, but it turns out that when you teach business strategy, you don't touch people the same way that you do creative writing. So fortunately, I fell in love with the research and uh, and that didn't take long. Sitting in a seminar with Javier Jimeno or Rana Alaparath and Tim Schoenaker and, and uh, Michael Leibline and, and those sorts of folks uh, really fire up your uh, interest in research. So, 
so that's that's my story. Okay. Well, I, I noticed that your um, your interest in in real options started early. It was a, a central part of your uh, dissertation, was it not? Yes, it was. So uh, I'm just uh, trying to find it here. Uh, the dissertation title was uh, a very option-sounding dissertation. Yeah. Um, I can't seem to put my finger on. Oh yeah, here we go. Innovation through quasi-integration, an application of option theory to governance decisions in the biotech industry. So um, tell us a little bit about how you found your dissertation topic to begin with. Yeah. Well, you know, Purdue has a strong tradition in strategic groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, Carl Kuhl um, was one of the strongest students Purdue had ever graduated. Carl Kuhl. He's a legend. Um, um, I don't know if he still holds that legendary status among PhD students, but, but he's a legend. And I, and I didn't think uh, Carl had it quite figured out. So my, my, initial, um, my initial interest was in kind of, you know, cleaning up what Carl had left on, undone. And I thought I had some decent ideas. And, and, uh, and, you know, Dan, you know, Dan was reasonably supportive of that. Uh, but then I went to the 1992 Academy of Management. And I saw this paper by uh, Dong J. Kim and, and Bruce Kogan. Mm -hmm. And it was on technological platforms. And, uh, and that had a, a, a little option, real option uh, flavor to it. Not, it. It was very indirect, but it, it, it had some to it. And, and I came back and, and Dan kind of, I think kind of steered me away from strategic groups. And, you know, is there something else you're interested in? And, and so I was super turned on by this and I started reading more work by Kogan. Right. And um, I just became more and more interested. And uh, Bruce, of course, has a paper uh, about joint ventures as real options. And, a bunch of them at that time. Yeah. And, um, uh, and Bruce, Bruce is one of those guys that uh, you can read a paper 20 times written by him and you learn something new each time you read it, you know? So, so I found, I, I felt that way when I was reading uh, Bruce, Bruce's work. And I thought this idea of options, strategic options was interesting. And a guy named Dilip Hurry at Wharton uh, was doing some work at that time with Ned Bowman. Uh, not much, but some of it was being published on real options, but there wasn't a whole lot. There was another guy, I forget his name, Oh, geez. I shouldn't even say that, but, um, uh, but so that kind of turned me on to this topic. And then, and then the issue was, well, how do I, how do I write a topic on this when nobody at Purdue knows anything about real options? Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting challenge, you know, cause you generally write dissertations on topics that your chairs or advisors know something about. Something about, yeah. So uh, I recruited a guy named Kent Miller, who was on faculty at Purdue and now at Michigan State, uh, a good, really good scholar. And he knew a little bit about real options and Dan knew how to write and shape a paper. And so, uh, and then Arnie, Arnie Cooper was just an all around fabulous uh, scholar. Uh, and um, 
so those three, uh, along with uh, Pat, uh, quant methods guy, were on my committee. Mm -hmm. And we managed to write this dissertation on real options. So. Okay, so what was it? So that it was the it was the um, what was it in the paper uh, by uh, Bruce and Dongjay? Because he said that's what really sparked your interest. What was it about that that really uh, got you excited when you read well, it? you know, the, they looked at the semiconductor industry, and th their conclusion was that uh, the ability to diversify into one of these segments of the semiconductor industry tends to be a function of, uh, you know, which of these segments was a, a more robust platform for expansion. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I thought that was kind of a cool concept. You know, they say corporate strategy is, you know, uh, not all platforms are equal. Uh, some mm -hmm. of them have more, you know, in, in, in my terminology or reasonable terminology would be, they have more option value. Right. But, and and, uh, and so that I thought that was that was cool. Nice. So uh, you know, but I you're asking me about things that are 25 years. I know, I know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do one more question like that before I move on, which is this, which is um, you know, I find, uh, and I ask this because you know we've got doctoral students on the line here who, uh, you know, are contemplating what they're going to do for their dissertation. And I find often that doctoral students have an easy, relatively easy time finding a topic that they're, that they're interested in, but a relatively hard time narrowing it down to a specific research question. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how that process worked for you? How did you take this general interest in, in real options and narrow it down to a specific manageable, researchable question? Yeah, sure. Um, First of all, let me just show you this real quick. I don't know if you can see this. Okay. So this, yeah. I show this my, to my doctoral students all the time. So, Time so on, and what's on the vertical? On the vertical is enthusiasm for a topic. <laughs> and on the bottom is time, okay? Yes. So, you know, like I came back from the 1992 Academy of Management. I was super enthusiastic yes. about real options. You were a T equals zero there. But the more you read, the more you think, oh my gosh, Co you know, Kogut's already done this. <laughs> and so you read more and you think, oh my gosh, he's got three papers on the topic, you know, and you find, and Dilip Hurry's got stuff. And so, so you, you get to the bottom and a lot of times you, you, you know, you feel like quitting, uh, but the diligent dissertator will, you know, will, will flip it up, you know, right. they'll keep, They'll keep reading and they'll keep, you know, contemplating uh, and they'll actually change the shape of the curve. So that curve is endogenous. That's the important thing that you have to remember. It's endogenous mm. to you and your effort and ability to find a gap. Um, so what was the question again, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> How did you narrow it down to a specific research question? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there, there comes there comes a time when you, you have to think about what's practical, you know, what's empirically feasible. And I really liked empirics and Purdue is really known, and I think they're still known for their, despite Rich's presence, for their empirical, 
empirical prowess and training of doctoral students. Certainly true. And so I knew it was going to be an empirical dissertation. And uh, so I started to think, well, what could I, what could I do? Uh, what could I get data on? And so alliances uh, were an interesting topic to me. And, um, uh, and so I found, some I found some data from the North Carolina Biotechnology Center and decided uh, to pursue that. I don't know. That's a tough question, Rich. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. What, were, what were the biggest challenges then in executing it? Um, you know, I think one of the challenges was, see, Gary Bizzano, uh out of UC Berkeley, now he's now at Harvard. Harvard, yes. Had written this paper, you know, on alliances and the choice between equity and non-equity alliances. And he also wrote one about equity alliances and acquisitions. So he had kind of filled this space as well. And his was a transaction cost argument. And Tom would know that those papers well. And so I was kind of examining <coughs> similar phenomena through a real options lens. So the, so the, the, so the most um, important alternative explanation was a transaction cost. one. And, uh, and so I, I, think, I think the biggest challenge was how to rule out that alternative explanation, you know, the transaction cost story. So I had to get a, you know, a measure of, you know, of some sort of proxy for transaction costs. And I don't think I had a great one, but I had, you know, I had one and, and uh, you know, raised that, you know, raised that issue. So, so yeah, I, you know, that paper, I think that dissertation paper has something like 800 citations. So that's, that's pretty good. Outstanding. Yeah. So ruling out alternative explanations, that's a, that is an important point. Mm -hmm. So yeah, increasingly, increasingly, it's an important point for doctoral students. Okay. You've got to, you know, you've got to raise the alternative explanations. And, and this is an issue with my paper today. So I, I want you guys to, to help me figure out the alternative explanation story and whether I'm doing a very good job. Okay. Yeah. I mean, identification of course has become a huge thing and uh, uh, reviewers are, are very keen to come up with every, every possible alternative explanation they can think of uh, to, uh, to try to put an obstacle in your path. So that is true. Um, so let me, let me shift gears then. So how did you get from, from the, the research that you were doing then to the research that you're doing now? What's been the, the path? Well, you know, when I was at Purdue, um, one of my uh, one of my mentors was Arnie Cooper. Arnie Cooper is a legend. Boy, he he was uh, you always he was so soft spoken. You always tended to underestimate Arnie Cooper. I remember when I was in my dissertation defense. You know, I was thinking the toughest questions were going to come from Dan and Kent, but <laughs> Arnie. <laughs> I already asked one question the whole time and it was right at the heart of the dissertation. You know, it was just right at the heart of it. And he always tended to do that. So, um, uh, but anyway, Arnie, um, you know, the nice thing that they do at Purdue is they, they mix up your research assistantships. 
mm-hmm. if they used to do this. So you wouldn't stick with one person the whole time. You know, I was a, I was a research assistant for, for Dan, for Ernie, for Carolyn Wu. And uh, Ernie kind of got, got me caught on entrepreneurship. He says, Tim, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be in strategy, it might be kind of nice to have a secondary interest and entrepreneurship is growing. There are lots of chairs in entrepreneurship. Um, it's, an, you know, it's an underdeveloped area of research. So you might think about having this, this stream in entrepreneurship. So I've that's, of, a, that's great foresight at the time. I mean, that is amazing foresight. Incredible. So I've kind of maintained research in both camps. You know, some in entrepreneurship, some in corporate strategy. And if you look at my work, uh, and I was going to talk about this in my presentation, but, but if, you, if you look at my work, it's pretty much the same as it was before, you know. Um, the, the, the common theme is, uh, you know, uncertainty, and they pretty much all have this real option component to it, um, even now. Uh, so management under uncertainty, and, and I like to look at dichotomous decisions, you know, entry, exit, mm. you know, um, enter, uh, those sorts of things. So, so they're all pretty much the same. Uh, you know, for example, I looked at a, I did, wrote a paper that was published in Management Science on what I call hybrid entrepreneurship, and uh, we basically, you know, we discovered that, you know the whole the literature kind of casts the entry decision as a zero one you either enter or you don't you you're a, you're a um, uh, entrepreneur or you're a wage worker but we discovered that lots of people are both right simultaneously you know they're both wage workers and entrepreneurs and uh, uh, and this might provide kind of a low sunk cost way to experiment in entrepreneurship, you know, without giving up your wage job, you know? And uh, so that's, so we, you know, in that paper, we don't explicitly talk about real options, but it's implicit in, you know, in that that scenario, right? Um, So even today, most of my work, now I just wrote one recently that's on kind of entrepreneurship policy and I'm increasingly interested in that. And that doesn't have a, 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 an option component to it. But certainly this resource redeployment stuff does. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a switching option, um, you know, that, um, that we're characterizing. Um, so I haven't really changed a whole lot. Really. Okay. <laughs> you and, just deepened you know, rather, than, rather than broadened. I, I remember Jeff, Jeff Ryer was, he came after me in the PhD program and, and then he uh, was a part of our department with Tom and he made a comment to me that's kind of stuck with me. Uh, he says, Tim, you know, I really appreciate the way that you, you kind of use real options as a hammer and you use that to kind of, address a number of different phenomena. And he says, as opposed, you know, in contrast, what he does is his, he focuses on the phenomena, right. which is alliances or governances and alliances. And he used various, various theoretical perspectives to address that. And, and there, are, there are pluses and minuses with each. You know, I think with his approach, one of the nice things is that you're 
agnostic, or you should be ag more agnostic about theoretical support or finding theoretical support for your, for your theory. And so in that sense, you may be, uh, uh, you may be less, you may be more unbiased. You may be less biased. Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm a real options person, I what I have to guard against is trying to, trying to support my theory. Um, but, you know, one of the advantages of my approach is it's hard to understand a theory. I mean, it takes a couple of years to figure out a theory if you want to know, do it really well. And, and if you're jumping back and forth between theories, it's, it's, it's challenging. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other advantage of being phenomenon focused is, you know, it tends to, um, tends to help uh, practitioners relate better to what you're doing, I think than if you're theory focused, yes. I think, I think that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so, okay, so. And that's one of my regrets. I noticed one of your questions on your little thing was, you know, what sort of, what things do you regret, something like that. And, yes. And, and, and I would say, I think I, think I regret not, <clears throat> not seeking to have more influence on practice, mm. you know. Uh, and and I, think the, I think the example that you provided, you know, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, I, you know, I, I should. I think we should all do things like translate our research for HBR or Cal California Management Review or something like. That. It helps us in the classroom. It makes us more credible. And um, so I would definitely advocate that. And Jeff's Jeff's done done a good job with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder what what that would look like in a broader sense. I mean, is there are there companies out there that are looking for real options consulting or anything like that. I don't know. Well, I mean, the whole topic of managing under uncertainty is, is pretty important, you know, and, you know, this issue of uh, redeployment during the pandemic is really pretty true uh, prevalent. So true. I have a friend who, uh, uh, worked in uh, jet engines uh, and uh, suddenly found himself making ventilators. He got redeployed. So, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, at this point, what do you think are the most important unanswered questions about real options? What do we not know about real options that by this point we really ought to know? Mm. Um, well, uh, let, let me just kind of reshape that question a bit because, uh, because the way I think about real options is that it's just a tool. You know, it's just a way, it's just a way of thinking to help you appraise situation. And when you think about it, every theory of the firm has a, has a valuation approach implicit in it. It's usually not explicit, but are we to assume, for example, that transaction cost economics or resource-based theory, are we to assume that they use discounted cash flow, you know, approaches to value various decision alternatives? Hmm. Or are we to assume that they use real options? It's, it's hmm. not clear, but to the extent that they're using discounted cash flow, then they're, they're, they're not fully capturing the value of an opportunity. And so, so the way that I try to employ the theory is not, not 
uh, in and of itself, but in, in, in concert with, with another theory. So resource-based, for example, resource-based view um, uh, might be mischaracterizing, uh, you know, a particular phenomena if you don't consider the, the option component that's embedded in it. So that's, that's kind of how I, I think about it. Okay. Um, so, so uh, yeah, there's, there's a very interesting paper, for example, um, by a guy named Gustavo Monza, Monzo in, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And uh, he's studying entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial entry. And uh, so if I, I noticed one of your questions was, if I had to do a dissertation right now, what would it be? Yes. I think it would be on something like this. So he, he basically, you know, the, the literature has found, for example, that entrepreneurs on average make less and have higher risk than uh, wage earners. Right. Um, and, you know, what's the explanation for that? Oh, it's because they value things other than money. Uh, and they don't, and, and they're, you know, they, they're biased. They don't, they don't fully take into account risk. And, and what Manzo does, he comes along and says, well, wait a minute, you know, that's kind of a, that may be true, but let's, you know, let's think about if entrepreneurs may be capturing the option value associated with the, the venture. And, and so when you take that into account, you know, they're not irrational at all, or they're, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily um, uh, focused on, uh, you know, non-financial stuff, or they're not necessarily biased. So that's the sort of work that I, I think is interesting. You might provide new insight about entry or exit decisions um, that has, that other theories tend to ignore, you know. Mm -hmm. So with regards to resource redeployment, where are the research opportunities? Well, this whole idea, Tom's, Tom's the expert on diversification, but the, this, this whole idea of, um, you know, we've just recently discovered that, well, there may not be a diversification discount on, on average, you know. Uh, but certainly there seems to be in, 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 in lots of cases. Um, so how, you know, why, when does it make sense for multi-business firms to, um, to, to well, to, to put two businesses under the same, the mm -hmm. same portfolio? And in um, our answer, the dominant answer in strategy, there are several of them, but the dominant answer in strategy is, well, we want to get economies of scope, which we characterize as, as uh, intratemporal economies of scope or synergy, you know, and um, but there may be this flexibility story, mm -hmm. you know? and and so what you know, to what extent? So one interesting question is to to what extent does the synergy story dominate the value creation of multi-business firms or the or the flexibility story? And uh, so every, everything that we've found with regards to diversification suggests more relatedness creates more value in the multi-business firm setting, but it might be due to the fact that they can redeploy more easily. 
rather than you know share resources simultaneously. So teasing apart, you know, which of these strategies, synergy versus the redeployability, uh, is an interesting question. Um, another interesting question is understanding how. I mean, the redeployment story that I I talk about is pretty much. It's very similar to the internal capital market story mm. finance guys have talked about for a while. It, you know, cash, cash is pretty fungible, right? You can use it where, it, you know, if there are inducements to, to transfer, you can transfer, transfer it pretty costlessly. And we're saying, well, wait a minute, you might also redeploy people. Mm -hmm. The presentation I'm going to talk about today, it's buildings, redeploy plants or buildings, right? Um, uh, so, uh, so teasing apart the differences between the internal capital market story and uh, the resource redeployment story is, is an opportunity for research as well. Um, so I would, I would certainly encourage that. So those are a few ways without talking on and on about it, but uh, okay. a couple of you know, research opportunities. And how about for your other interest in entrepreneurship? What, what do we not know about entrepreneurship? Oh, you know, I'm really enthralled with this issue of experimentation, as you might guess, you know. Sure, there's a lot of options value to that, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'd be inclined, and I think uh, we just hired a new faculty at UConn, a guy from Cornell who works with West Sign and he's doing some randomized control experiments. And uh, I, think, I think this opportunity to explore how entrepreneurship education, you know, influences, um, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, like the, the, these accelerators that have popped up all over the, all over the world, it should be fairly easy to, to run a ra randomized control experiment to see if those things really make a difference or not. That's one area. Another thing is, uh, I just kind of took a little foray into, into this, uh, the SBIR program, you know, or grant programs in general targeting entrepreneurship. You know, do those make a difference? And if so, you know, which ones make a difference more, you know? Um, uh, Surprisingly, there's little work that's been done examining treatment effects uh, in these in these areas. So, um, so, uh, and and I think that I think this suggestion kind of um, it's consistent with my my interest. The older I get, the more interested I am in, I guess, more practical things. And and so, I remember when I was at Purdue, you know, Dan asked the question, you know, why don't, you know, why don't we have a, a Nobel Prize in strategy? You never see us, you know, it's just, it's the econ folks that dominate, you know, that, you know, why, why don't we have an influence in policy? Why don't we see people in strategy uh, being in positions of influence? And, and, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but Ronnie Chatterjee is yes. going for treasurer of North Treasure Carolina. Of North Carolina yes. uh, so I'm encouraged to see that. I think Mike Porter, 
uh, and um, Scott Stern was were on some sort of importance committee examining uh, something to do with social welfare or something like that. So increasingly I'm interested in, you know, questions around policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think we're seeing lots of folks in the strategy field do that. You know, this foray into non-market strategies is, um, is aligned with this interest in policy and, and impact and, and policy. So, yeah, those are a few things. Sorry for rambling on a bit. But. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. And you're mentioning non-market strategy. I, I was thinking, yeah, is there an option theory for non-market strategy? Is that a, a topic to which option, real options has been applied yet? Or are there other topics to which real options have not yet been applied? That they, You, you know, I, I, there, was, there was a guy at Michigan. He's probably graduated now. I, I'm not sure I, I recall the person, but he was kind of looking at uh, interest in uh, sustainability efforts. And... Um, as and he characterized that as an option, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I don't recall the details right now. But uh, yeah, so and not, this term non-market strategy—it's so <laughs> it's so. This isn't a criticism, but it's so vague. Anything could be included in it, almost you know. So it's not entirely clear. I'm not an expert on non-market strategies, but. Uh, but uh, what I'm saying is I'm not sure I completely understand what a non-market strategy is. <laughs> Indeed. So <clears throat> you mentioned the, um, the research um, on, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the, the, the man's name who was doing it. The uh, um, Menzo, yeah. Gustavo Menzo. Yeah, that's right. So on entrepreneurs as capturing option value, right? And that made me think, and let me just play devil's advocate here for a moment. You know, could, is, is it, is there a risk that um, real options theory could just simply be used as a catch-all to explain away any seeming irrationality, right? So, so we look at these entrepreneurs' behaviors and maybe it looks a little irrational to us while we apply real options thinking and suddenly it becomes rationalized. Is that, is that a risk? Well, I think it goes both ways, Rich, you know, you know, so for example, this, this whole escalation of commitment literature, you know, there's a rational explanation to that using real options theory. It may be that both are correct, but boy, if I'm studying escalation of commitment or if I'm studying real option theory, I should be aware of these alternative explanations and design experiments to rule them out. So yeah, it's a risk, just like there's a risk with every theory having alternative explanations to it. It's our job to try to figure out what those are and to deal with them in our empirical designs. Right, so how do we know that it's the entrepreneur capturing an option value versus just simply making a mistake? Yeah. Right, I don't know. So, Okay, so let me see. I did have uh, one or two other questions. Let me get my notes up. Can I ask a quick question of Tim while you're you're thinking, Rich? Yeah. So, Tim, uh, you you mentioned that uh, it would be interesting, or you think there hasn't been uh, good research on all the uh, university efforts, say, in uh, developing entrepreneurship and the SBIR 
funds. And I'm, I'm really surprised by that because Purdue is always trumpeting the success of its efforts to create more uh, new businesses and better licensing revenue and so on. So I'm just, uh, it's interesting to me that that might still be untested in some sense. Could you just say a little bit more about what hasn't been done there? Well, um, uh, maybe they're just talking about it informally and not formally, but uh, but still, that might be an interesting research opportunity. Well, I I think one of the things that I've what I'm trying to say is that it's super hard to tease out um, selection effects from treatment effects in situations like university research or government policy program. You have to have a, you know, some sort of natural experiment or, you know, really, really good data to tease that apart. And, um, and most people don't do it. You know, what they do is if they, if they want to see what, you know, is, the, if they want to test whether, you know, Purdue startups are doing well, you know, they don't necessarily use a really clean experiment to good at, you know, get at treatment effects or selection effects. So there's lots of ground. There's what I'm, what I, you know, I'm just kind of generally saying is there's lots of opportunity to try to ascertain more rigorously whether they really, really, the programs really make a difference Thank you. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, does anybody else have any other questions for Tim? Okay, then I'll I'll just let me ask my final question then. Um, so, Tim, I noticed you know you've um, you've chaired nine dissertations and served as a committee member for twelve others. So obviously you have and and some really successful uh, people um, in the in the career like Arkady Sakhartov and uh, Brian McCann, uh, John O'Brien. Um, so my my question is, what's what's the most important piece of advice that you give to your own doctoral students? Okay. Look, uh, can I? I'm going to give two. Okay. Absolutely. So the first. The first we is. We had Jackson Nickerson on, and he he gave seven. So you can, two is certainly within the boundaries. The first is, um, I think I heard this from Arnie, I believe. So the first is, uh, the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. Okay. What do I mean by that? What I mean is we, you, you tend to think that this is going to be your, you know, your, your, and you treat it like it's this, you know, the, the seminal work that you're going to perform. And, and that's not necessarily true. You just want to, you want to get it done. I mean, you want to do good work. I'm not saying take a shortcut. And, and if you look at my students and their success in the dissertation competitions, you'll see that they've, they've done pretty well, but they've, you know, they've finished and they've finished in a timely way. And so, um, uh, so, so make sure, don't get so caught up uh, in having the perfect work uh, get caught up in manage, spend more time managing it, okay, and managing your chairs and your advisors, okay. It's your job to manage them. You, you, if you, if if I'm working, if you're a student and you're working with Rich, you say, Rich, I want to graduate in you know, 2022, 
And here's the set of activities I'm going to perform to get there, you know, and this, you know, and I'd like you to help me achieve that. Okay. And, uh, and make it happen and meet the deadlines and so forth. So manage your dissertation process and, and make sure it's done uh, is number one. Uh, number two is, I, I think, you know, people have asked me, what's the most important quality of a, of a, um, PhD student and and I'm, I'm I think I'm reflecting a little bit about my own uh, myself and uh, I think initiative is a real important quality taking initiative so I, I love it when my doctoral students are not waiting for me to tell them what to do okay you are the scholar you are the expert you're developing a you know, an, an expertise, and you have to, you have to drive at the truth, okay? You can't wait for your dissertation advisor to tell you what to do. You have to do it yourself because your dissertation advisor has a million other things that he's trying to deal with right now. <laughs> and it's hard enough just to manage that. And if you wait for him to read every chapter of your dissertation and, and give you guidance before you go to the next stage, you're doing, you know, you know you're you're probably not taking enough initiative. So, so take initiative um, to find the truth. Okay. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a third, Rich. Okay. And this, I think uh, I, I'm becoming, I've become increasingly uh, intent on this. Okay. So the other is um, remember, remember your purpose. The reason why you you're into this field is to, is to diagnose the truth. It is super easy, super easy to become biased in your research. So, you know, here's an example. Okay, so Folta, I love working with data. I've got my data set and I'm, I finally put it together. It's taken six months to do so and I'm ready to run the first regression. Okay, so I run the regression and I look for some evidence of my theory. Oh, it's not, it didn't work. It's garbage. Yeah. It, there's no, it, there's either no relationship or it's opposite of what I affect. My first thought is there must be something wrong with the data or the way that I've operationalized the variable. So let me try something else, you know? And uh, so you can continue down this, but you, you see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. You keep you keep switching things up till you get the results, and and that's in some ways that's uh, that's being dishonest, and uh, and so you really have to guard against providing. Um, you have to guard against your passion for your theory. You have to guard against your passion for your theory, and I think the way to do that is is setting up alternative explanations for your theory. And it's easy. It's 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 much easier to do that if you if you say I've got a couple of possible explanations. I'm going to run a horse race between these two. If you just have one, then you know you're like you're much more likely to be biased. You know. So there you go. Great advice. Thanks very much, Tim. Mm -hmm. It's been wonderful uh, time spent with you. So let's uh, all uh, join me in thanking Tim for sitting for the interview. Thank you.